Well, good morning. How many of you uh, in your earlier growing up years enjoyed having stories read to you? A few of you? Yeah, there's something about that. And so this morning, I'm going to read you a story. So just relax, focus here, and enjoy. For the next few minutes, I want to take us on a trip back in time to a very different world, a very different place. Imagine with me that we are citizens of the Roman Empire, living just after the turn of the second century. The month is March, the year is 2003. Not 2003, 203. The Roman Empire is governing the Mediterranean world. One Lucius Septimus Severus is the reigning emperor. He's been in power since 193. And like most emperors before him, he is a military general. He gained the emperorship by defeating rival generals. It was a time of great upheaval. Rome, the empire, was caught up in the midst of a series of civil wars as its various military leaders vied for the position of emperorship. The year he became emperor was a rather traumatic year. It was known as the year of the five emperors. A succession of generals claimed the throne and then were assassinated in relatively short order, often by the Praetorian Guard. Severus was the fifth and lone survivor of that series of purges. Now, Severus is unique in that he is the first African-born emperor. As the last of the five generals, and he'll eventually end up dying in 2011. Thanks for the correction, 211. And not assassinated, he actually died from illness at the age of 66. He was on military campaign in Northern England at the time. But for now, he is rather securely ensconced in power. He claimed to be the adoptive son of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was the last of what was known as the five good emperors, and thus it sort of cemented his claim and credibility to the emperorship itself. Now we find ourselves not just anywhere in the Roman Empire, but in fact in North Africa, close to Severus's home stomping grounds. We are in the city of Carthage. Now, Carthage is a port city. It would be on the coast of present-day Tunisia. And Carthage itself had its own checkered history in relationship to Rome. We won't go into that. However, at this time, it is a thriving city of about half a million residents. And like many port cities, it has a polyglot mix of ethnic groups. As the chief city of Rome's North African colonies, it also has shows of wealth which uh, gave evidence of its, its aspirations, its desire to be one of the leading centers, one of the cosmopolitan centers of the Roman Empire. It has all the hallmarks of Roman power and cultural achievements. Lavish baths, aqueducts, a form with various temples, a theater, and an amphitheater. Perhaps a little like this one here, which isn't in Carthage itself, 
It was excavated a little bit later in the former Roman colony city of North Africa called Thystrus. But it would have been very similar. It could hold roughly about 30,000 people. Of course, amphitheaters were used to host an array of annual festivals and games, commemorating Rome's place as the dominant power and allowing people to affirm their loyalty as good citizens by attending these elaborate spectacles. Now, cities like Carthage were also home to all sorts of other religious groups. And Rome itself was tolerant of diversity so long as these groups participated in the official Roman cult of emperor worship. As long as they gathered under that umbrella, they were free to follow whatever bizarre teaching they wanted. At its minimum, such participation amounted to drinking a public toast or offering a public sacrifice to the emperor during the festival games held annually in his honor. This practice of emperor worship was called what the Romans called religio. And by acknowledging the emperor's divinity as a kind of divine mediator between the people of Rome and the gods of the cosmos, they were seeking peace and the well-being of the empire. The emperor acted as the people's guarantor of faithfully honoring the gods so that they would bless the empire with good fortune and thus placate their more violent and vengeful tendencies. Now, what Rome feared was the undermining of religio in the form of what they called superstitio or superstition, false religion, which could take the form of wrong worship or the worship of false gods, improper worship or no worship at all, atheism. Rome's leaders were always on the lookout for this sort of practice, this kind of dark magic, the conjuring of the dark powers that could bring chaos, instability, and disruption of life and order in the empire. Such practices were considered subversive. They were disloyal. They created anarchy, and they threatened to bring down the wrath of the gods who held Rome's fate in their hands. Now, one such superstitio increasingly cropping up in various parts of the empire, even had spread to the very city of Rome itself, was teachings promoted by a group of followers of a crucified Hebrew rabbi, one Christos. He had lived during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, some, an emperor some 170 years earlier, and he too claimed to be the son of God, this cult was gaining popularity, especially in key port cities of the Mediterranean. It was, kind, it was as if a clever parasite had infected the main trade arteries vital to Rome's commercial success and well-being and was now exploiting them to spread this superstition and thus undermine true religion, which loyal Roman citizens believed made their success possible in the first place. How diabolically clever. These seditious ones, followers of Christos, who believed the absurd claim that he had risen from the dead after he was crucified and now reigned in some nether region called heaven and somehow let his life inhabit those of his followers, they were telling others that Christ was the true king, that he was building his own kingdom. He was the true son of God. He was Lord and not Caesar. Now, more recently, about a hundred years prior, the Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus, a colony on the Black Sea, one Pliny the Younger, 
had taken action against members of this dark cult, which had sprung up in his own region. And while he found their practices rather harmless, if not bizarre, their very identity as followers of a rival to Caesar, followers of another king, another son of God, made them a threat. Pliny had sought the backing of the emperor of the time, Trajan, in his dealings with them when he identified and brought these Christ followers before the governor. They were asked to affirm their loyalty to Caesar as Lord. If they refused, even after being asked three times, then they were executed as enemies of the state. It was, after all, a capital crime. Trajan seemed to approve of this approach, but at the same time, he cautioned Pliny not to expend effort hunting them down, but if they cropped up, he had to deal with them on this basis. Their presence did present a noticeable threat. And now, a hundred years later, the Christos virus had not subsided, but now had infected Carthage, and it needed to be stopped. Now, as the authorities identified the house gatherings of the cult members and then made a note of their leaders, the powers that be, like a stealthy jungle cat stalking its prey, were ready to pounce. They caught one of the house groups during an evening gathering and took them, all five, into custody, three men and two women, which was of no matter except that it turned out that one of these women was the daughter of a leading family of the city, one Vivia Perpetua. Not only was her family well-connected, but she was a mother of a one-month-old child. At 22 years of age, she was in the bloom of early womanhood. This was a potentially embarrassing situation. And so to do damage control, her father was notified to come and persuade her to denounce her ties to the cult. Now, it turns out, Perpetua was a very new Christian. Christian, Christ one, what a derisive term. That's what they called themselves. And the meeting at which she was apprehended was a gathering of new converts, who they called catechumenates. They were gathering for instruction. Now, again, rather embarrassingly, it turns out the ambush had taken place too soon as none of the leaders were there. However, shortly after the group's arrest, one Saturus came to the governor where they were being held to turn himself in, claiming to be their instructor. The Roman governor, one Hilarianus, had no choice but to arrest him as well. It seemed like it would be an easy matter to resolve quietly. Perpetua's father showed up to talk her out of this nonsense. Now, of course, the girl would submit to the head of the family, the pater familias, whose word was law in family matters. She would see reason. She would value family honor. She would yield to her maternal responsibilities for her child. As for the others, they would likely be persuaded by her lead. She was high-born, liberally educated, at least for a woman, married, a mother dearly loved by her father and mother and her siblings. All she had to do was sacrifice to the well-being of the emperor. It wasn't as if she had to give up her friends. All she had to do was participate in a public ceremony of sacrifice. Lots of others would be there alongside her. What a shock to all when Perpetua claimed, calmly rejected all of these appeals, these powerful arguments of her father. 
Her father was by turn incensed and then pleading in tears. To explain her actions to her father, she turned to a table in the room on which a pitcher of water rested. Father, she said, do you see this vessel lying here to be a small pitcher or is it something else? Perpetua kept a prison diary and this is why we know this dialogue. He replied, I see it plainly, a pitcher. Then she said, can it be called by any other name than that it is? And he replied, no. Perpetua then concluded, neither can I call myself anything other than what I am, a Christian. Her father departed in tears, utterly distraught, and, in Perpetua's own words, overcome by the devil's arguments. Now, during the next few days, while held in detention, Perpetua and the new converts were baptized, which assured her of the Spirit's promise to fortify her for what lay ahead. And what lay ahead was a transfer to the local dungeon, a place of physical and spiritual darkness, which she, by her own admission, entered with great fear. Even as her family continued their attempts to dissuade her, causing her additional anxiety, she did obtain permission to keep her child with her so she could nurse him. Some of the local Christian leaders brought food to the prisoners, and Perpetua found that in these conditions, the dungeon was transformed for her. It went from being a place of darkness and fear to being a palace, and she wanted to be nowhere else. The conduct of the group of young Christians condemned to death so amazed their jailer that he was willing, he, they found favor in his eyes, and he was willing to extend them special privileges. At the urging of one of her brothers, Perpetua asked God for a vision of what was to become of her. In a dream one night, she was shown a golden ladder ascending to heaven. On each side of the ladder were attached a series of sharp weapons so that only one person could ascend at a time and that very carefully to avoid being torn to pieces. At the base of the ladder crouched a dragon lying in wait to assault those who, climbed, who ventured to climb up it. Saturus was the first to ascend and walking carefully, climbing carefully, he made it straight to the top. Now he called down to to Perpetua to come up, but to take care that the the dragon did not bite her. Perpetua replied, in the name of the Lord Jesus, he shall not hurt me. At the name of Jesus, she saw the dragon cringe in fear, and as she stepped on the first rung of the ladder, her foot came down hard on the dragon's head, and she ascended safely to the top. Now when she woke up, she understood from her vision that her fate would not be released to freedom, but rather to face death in the arena. Several days later, she and her companions were brought before the governor one more time, and Hilarionis would determine their fate. Before putting the question to her, he appealed for her to sacrifice to the emperor for the sake of her poor father. She replied that she could not, for she was a Christian. Whereupon Hilarianus condemned her and her companions to face the wild beasts in the gladiator games, soon to be held in honor of the emperor. Leading up to that day, Perpetua arranged for her child to be cared for by another Christian and prayed that she would stop lactating so as not to have breast pain when she could no longer nurse her child herself. Her prayer was answered, as were her prayers for the salvation of one of her brothers. 
And when the day came for their being thrown to the wild beasts in the amphitheater, the group of soon-to-be martyrs was allowed to enjoy a final meal together. Their appeal to their jailers was that it would be a shame to enter the arena on Caesar's birthday not looking well-fed and groomed. Perpetua, as it turns out, had a bit of a vain streak in her. She liked to look good at all times. The jailer consented. Now, Felicitas, who was Perpetua's maid or slave, and also the other woman in the group, at the time of their arrest, was eight months pregnant herself and would not be allowed to join the others in the arena as it was against the law to kill pregnant women, at least under such circumstances. It's not that she would be allowed to go free. She would simply be allowed to give birth to her child and then killed later. But fearing she would be killed with common criminals and not fellow believers, they prayed that she would give birth before their execution date. And indeed she did three days prior. Her baby, though premature, was healthy and was given to the care of another Christian woman. And Felicitas joyfully went along to face the death with the others. Now on the day of their execution, three young men, the catechumenates and Saturus, were the first ones brought into the arena. They were ravaged by a series of wild beasts, Saturus himself with his side torn open by a leopard, and then finished off by gladiators. When the tribune of the arena sought to clothe Perpetua and Felicitas in the costume of Ceres, the Roman goddess of fertility, Perpetua strenuously objected on the basis that she was willingly facing death. Therefore, her liberty should allow her the dignity of facing it without such mockery. The tribune yielded, and seemingly everything was a go, but then a new indignity the two women were forced to strip naked and then bound by netting to be thrown in front of the crowd. However, when they appeared, even the bloodlust of the crowd could not endure seeing this level of shame. And the crowd jeered, forcing the tribune to recall the women yet again and clothe them in their own tunics. Then, appropriately, supposedly, a wild female cow was loosed on them. But even though it gored them, they did not die. Even though it tore open Perpetua's side, she at one point calmly adjusted her tunic as if the indecency of her exposure was too much, and then calmly faced the, bull, the, the cow once again. By this time, Perpetua was so caught up in the presence of the spirit that she expressed surprise that she was still living after the cow had gored her. When wild beasts proved incapable of killing the women, they were sent out once again to face a young gladiator. Now, this gladiator, likely himself a young captive who was forced into gladiatorial combat, came out and being something of a novice, his first slash caught her between the ribs, causing her to cry out, but not die. Then Perpetua extended her hand to the gladiator's arm and directed his sword to her throat, showing him where the next thrust must go. 
It seemed to some in the crowd that the day, that day as if death could not claim her unless she herself willed it. And so, Perpetua died that day along with four other Christians who would not sacrifice to Caesar. They died singing psalms, undergoing a second baptism in their own blood. Now, such a story seems light years away from our own time. Conditions that are so different from anything we encounter. Few, if any of us, will ever have to face such moments where we are confronted with the definitive choice between living and dying, between loyalty to King Jesus and sacrificing to Caesar. It makes identifying with such heroic witness like that of Perpetua and her companions very difficult, if not impossible. However, even though we may not be confronted with Perpetua's choice between loyalty to Jesus and to continue living here and now, all of us do come to crossroads where we have to affirm who we are and, most importantly, whose we are. Recall Perpetua's words to her father when he was pleading to her to sacrifice in honor of the emperor. She didn't say, I can't do that. Rather, she stated, I am not that. I can only be what I am, a Christian. And, just like that picture can never be anything other than a picture, she said, I can never be anything other than that which Christ has transformed me to be. Not only is she supported and cheered on by the great cloud of witnesses, which Hannah read to us in Hebrews 11 and 12, that crowd was far more important to her than the jeering crowd in the arena that day. Not only did she stand firm so she would win life, she could do this because she had already taken to heart the Apostle Paul's words to the Philippian church when he wrote, not that I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. She had been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. She was his, a Christian, a Christ one. And she could no more renounce him than that pitcher could somehow turn into a table. That is what God's transforming grace does for each one of us. It so changes us so that we can't conceive of being anything other. And so when we, as God's children, come to these crossroads times in our lives, these moments of decision, may we, like Perpetua, understand what is at stake. It's not, should I do that? Or can I get away with that? Or what's the bare minimum? Rather, we need to recall and reaffirm whose we are and thus what we have become. I have been laid hold of by Jesus Christ, and I am his. I am not Caesar's. I am not a pawn of any other god. I am not a dupe of the porn industry. I am not a slave to the brand loyalties of my wardrobe or my career ambitions or my social media approval rating or my sexual fantasies or any other such god. No, I am not that, but by God's love and grace, I am his child, beloved by him, transformed by his very life in me. I can't be anything but that, so help me God. Amen.